Hi, my name's Mark Kelly. I'm one of the leaders at City Church Leeds, and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. I hope that it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. You join us as we're journeying through the Gospel of Mark, and we're asking the question, Who is Jesus? A simple question with many answers. For more information about us and other resources and media, please visit citychurchleads.net. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. I'm very excited about sharing what I'm about to share this morning. It's going to be cool. It's our second week working through, or rather journeying through aspects of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, you'll have seen some of the headers come up in that little video there. And today, as John said, I'm going to talk about Jesus. So the question is, who is Jesus? Well, one of the answers to that question is, he is the mighty overcomer. Who agrees with that? Absolutely fantastic. I agree with that completely. Now, we often hear the phrase, don't we? We often hear the phrase, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean? And, and how, how does it apply to us? And so to, to help answer those questions, I'd like to pull out the Gospel of Mark three ways in which Jesus overcame something and was therefore victorious over it. So we're going to briefly explore over the next maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, we're going to briefly explore how Jesus overcame temptation in the desert. How Jesus overcame sorrow and despair in the Garden of Gethsemane. And ultimately how Jesus overcame death itself. So let's read our first bit of Mark together. So if we can turn please to uh, chapter 1 verses 9 to 13, and I'm going to be reading from the, uh, I, think, I think it's from the New International Version, at least that's where I copy and paste it from, so I hope it's that one. So Mark 1, verses 9 through 13, looks like you're all there. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now when you compare that to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the Gospel of Mark presents this as almost a footnote. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. There were some wild animals and some angels. Now let's move on. And I think that this in some ways exemplifies, exemplifies the gospel of Mark, that you feel you've taken on this kind of roller coaster, this roller coaster through the journey of the life of Jesus. This happened and, and then that happened. Bang, bang, bang. It's just so quick. But I want us to slow up slow up and just pause and for this kind of instance here I want us to consider one line that we don't find in either Matthew or Luke and incidentally this story uh, doesn't even show it doesn't even appear in the gospel of John but I think John has a he's got an altogether different flavor hasn't he to the other gospels and we'll see that when we cover it later in the year so this one line that we don't find in in Matthew or Luke is he was with the wild animals. 
But first, I think we've got to fill in the blanks, haven't we? We've got to fill in those blanks that Mark doesn't give us and remind ourselves that Satan tried every kind of temptation to deflect him from his mission. So no matter what must have been terrible, hurting hunger, he resisted Satan's temptation, Satan's suggestion that he simply make bread out of stones. I mean, come on, think about that. How tempting must that have been? Remember that, yeah, Jesus, he's divine, but he's also fully human, he's fully man, and he could be tempted. The scriptures are explicit in that. But what's fantastic about it is that Jesus resisted those temptations as a man. Now think about what, you're, what most of us are like when we miss just a couple of meals. <laughs> Shocking. Everything begins to look edible. Everything begins to look edible. And then take that to a day, a couple of days. My goodness, could you even stretch it to a week? I want to tell you this. I know that if I had something in front of me that I knew I could just change into something edible, I'd want to reach out and grab it. I mean, we've probably all had breakfast this morning. We're probably all okay for now. But honestly, you think about that. Think about when you start to miss a couple of meals and your stomach starts rumbling. I mean, how sweet and how lovely does food taste after you've gone through a period of, of kind of skipping meals? You're getting hungry now. But you know what? Jesus resists, like I said. He resists. He clings on to the hunger in a way that must have frustrated Satan no end. Jesus clung on to his hunger for the Father so that he was able to do his Father's will. So what else did Satan try to get Jesus to do? Well, he goaded him, didn't he? He tried to get him to be presumptuous with God, to throw himself from a pinnacle and have God send his angels to break his fall. He tempted him to put God to the test. And finally, what does he do? He tempts him with power. The creator of the universe and Satan tempts him with power. Satan is speaking directly to the man, to the human. He's absurdly trying to usurp his divine nature. He promises him all the earth's kingdoms. And he points out to Jesus how wonderfully glorious they all are. And all he asks in return is that Jesus... Worship him. He desires Jesus to become a devil worshiper, to distract him from his father and his mission. So we've filled that in. Let's go back to that, that line about the wild animals. Mark is the only writer that mentions them, and maybe, maybe he's emphasizing that God kept Jesus safe in a hostile environment. Jesus was physically weak from fasting, utterly alone. Satan bombarding him with these enticing offers. He's also got to put up with wild animals prowling around, waiting for a, a stumbled footing, a, a moment of distraction, waiting for an opportunity to strike day or night. And when you think that Mark, in this gospel, gave himself limited space to write about such things, to add the line, he was with the wild animals, suggests, I think, there's more to it than that. Is there a connection to before the fall? 
Adam in the Garden of Eden, a pristine place over which he had dominion over all the animals as God's agent, if you like, steward of all that God created, the animals queuing up to be given their name, their identity. Is Mark hinting that Jesus is the new kind of Adam, the ultimate man? <laughs> the Bear grills I kept thinking about when I wrote that. <laughs> and instead of a beautiful garden, just like Bear grills, Jesus is facing his temptations in the wilderness, a wilderness created by Adam's sin. And instead of kindly presiding over tame animals, the ultimate man is surrounded by wild animals. This sinful world into which Jesus enters to accomplish his mission is less like this pristine garden. It's more like Jurassic Park. Unlike Adam, the surroundings into which Jesus is put to live out human perfection are marred by sin's corruption. Unlike Adam, Jesus faces a wild land with wild animals. While Adam was set up for success, Jesus has got to go against the grain. But ultimately, Jesus overcame these supernatural temptations, overcame the natural predators, and he emerges from that grueling experience ready, willing, able, and equipped to start his ministry. And he goes on, he goes straight away, he goes on into action and he calls his first disciples. We see in other stories that Jesus displays complete mastery of every situation, whether confronted by physical illness, demonic oppression, demanding crowds, storms at sea, or nitpicking Pharisees. He overcomes every opposition and problem. How do we feel about our situations and difficulties? Do, do we feel like overcomers? Are we strengthened after a time of testing? Turn with me now to um, Mark 14 from verse 32 to 42. And we'll move on to the second and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark 14, from verse 32 to 42. So this is after the Last Supper and just before he's arrested. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Again, there are a number of things going on here which I think we need to slow down and take in to enable us to really see what is going on. Let's read that first bit again. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus, but God even, can feel sorrow, pain, and hurt. And right now, in this story, Jesus is being emotionally ripped to pieces. It's just a few lines, but what's going on here is so powerful. The words for deeply distressed and troubled in the original Greek are akthembeo and adamaneo. Akthembeo is translated as meaning to throw into terror, to alarm thoroughly, to terrify, to be struck with terror. Adamaneo is translated as meaning troubled, anguished, depressed. Jesus wasn't simply concerned. He wasn't just sharing a few gentle thoughts with his mates. He goes on to say, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. There's nothing else that he's focused on right now. His whole life is being squeezed into this moment, into this desperate, desperate realization of what's coming up. It's like, it's like looking up. Hopefully this won't happen to you. But it's like looking up and seeing a meteor flying towards you. And you know, you know that in that moment and in that place, your time is up. You've one path, you've one destiny, and it's, it's going to be fulfilled no matter what. It's coming. It's coming. So what's powerful about this story is that Jesus, even in this incredible depth of sorrow and mental pain and hurt, he still does what's expected. He pours out his heart to his father. He cries out, Abba, Father. And this is a colloquial Aramaic term for father, a word that most closely could be translated as daddy. It was a common term that young children would use to address their fathers. It signifies the close, intimate relationship of a father to his child, and as well as the childlike trust that a young child puts in his daddy. He pleads with his daddy. 
Is there any other way to sort this out? Is there anything else that can be done? But he knows. He knows his purpose. He knows that the cross represents the only hope for humanity. And he willingly, despite everything, submits himself to his Father's will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Amazing stuff, eh? Sarah thinks it's amazing. No? We're okay. It's amazing. And we see Jesus praying in that fashion. He submits himself again and again. He, he prays for at least an hour. He comes back and he finds no earthly support. And after some stern words, he goes again. And you can surmise that this was at least an hour again as he says he prayed the same thing. And if you do the same thing, it probably takes about the same amount of time. He's not running a race. He doesn't have to beat his previous best. So if Jesus prays the same thing again and again, it means that we who look to Jesus can keep on praying. Once doesn't have to be enough. And in fact, to develop that deep relationship with Daddy God, we must keep coming back to him again and again and again. Jesus says finally to his disciples, and in my head it always comes across as slightly exasperated, enough, rise, get up. Here comes my betrayer. He says get up and let's go, actually. But according to Scripture, he physically doesn't go anywhere. I checked. It doesn't seem to be a passage of time from one thing to the next. He seems to pretty much stay where he is. He doesn't go anywhere. And Judas and the crowd show up. Let's go. Is he expressing a mental attitude? Is he saying, I have weeped? I have cried, but now I am standing strong, ready to take the next step. He's gained strength by putting aside his own desires. And so in this, submission and acceptance seem to be the key to being and becoming an overcomer. The story goes on in Mark and in the other Gospels. He's captured, he's put on trial, and although seemingly powerless, Jesus maintains his self-control. He speaks only when it seems appropriate. And in fact, if you look at um, Mark 14, 61, and 15, 5, and 15, 5 in particular, in that last verse, it says that Pilate was amazed Pilate had all the military power at his disposal. He could do what he liked with Jesus, but he was baffled with Jesus. The Greek word that covers amazed could also be translated as in admiration. Pilate was probably used to prisoners begging for mercy, groveling at his feet. Yet Jesus, yet Jesus, he exuded an authority that was totally out of this world an authority of knowing who he was, his relationship with his father, and his absolute submission to him and his will. This was key 
to how he carried himself. Finally, let's see how Jesus overcame death by being a willing sacrifice on the cross. Let's turn with me, if you can, please, to Mark 15, verse 33 to 39. Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, they filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What did he cry? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. What did he cry? Looking again into the Greek, the word cry in verse 37 translates curiously, not as someone shouting loudly, as you may think, but it translates as to send away, to bid, going away or depart, to send forth, yield up, to expire, let go. Jesus left on his terms when the time was right. We see the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Who ripped it? Were there, were there some special angels commissioned for the job? Now go with me on this. But could you imagine how they must have relished being the ones to give dramatic illustration of the way now being ripped open between God and humanity. It says in the book of Hebrews, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. Can you picture, can you picture the delight on these, these angels as they demolished this oppressive barrier. It must, have been, it must have been shining. And the testimony of this centurion, I think, is also really compelling. Something about the way that Jesus cried out and died convinced this man, this, this hardened soldier, that this was no ordinary man, but someone very, very special the Son of God. Even at that agonizing moment, when his father looked away as Jesus took on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, Jesus didn't weaken one iota. His behavior all through his life and his death was authentic. And in our day where kids and young people, you know, they're crying out for authenticity. Despite celebrity hype, celebrity culture, 
If you talk to young people, they're crying out for authenticity. Jesus was authentic. He lived and he died as he taught. He overcame. And we know that this isn't the end, that, that there's more amazing stuff to come. This is just the beginning of the story. A story, I would say, that continues with, with you and me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34 says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus, who was crucified, rose again, and he defeated, he overcame death forever. Because of him, we who believe, we're assured of a fantastic future forever with God. We can go play table tennis with Jesus. So we've heard about Jesus, and we've heard how he overcame. But you may be asking, how does this apply to me, to us? How does it apply right now, in the here and now, in the circumstances in which I live? I sincerely hope that as you've listened and you've been reminded of how Jesus overcame these three things, that it's got you thinking for yourself. And hopefully you've already begun to apply it to your life. Because we're a thinking people. You're not here to get spoon-fed. You're here to be provoked so you think for yourself. But I'm going to give you some clues anyway to get you started. With the temptations in the desert, as Jesus performed three magnificent smackdowns of Satan, we see that Jesus knew the word. He knew it inside and out, and he threw those scriptures out at Satan like a sharp pointed arrow. As Christians, as little Christs, we follow his example of how to overcome temptation. We get into his word. We get into his word. This marvelous collection of books, this library of inspiration and education will let us know what is right and what is wrong. Together with the Holy Spirit, and our decision to be open and learn from the source, that's what will get us through the day. The Word of God. Celebrity preachers are not the answer. New fads of how to do church are not the answer. Books about the Bible are not the answer. The answers to everything, you can find them in this word. So don't ever belittle it. Excuse me. Don't ever ignore it. Don't ever listen to what somebody else says about it. Work through it for yourself. And then do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again. 
keep reading, keep learning, keep asking the Holy Spirit to reveal more and more from his word. Get equipped. Defend yourself well against all the temptations that are going to come your way. Jesus also overcame sorrow and despair. And we're to do the same. It's not that we can't go through them, that depression can't hit us and, and, and stay with us. But the point is that we need to become convicted enough to work our way through it and overcome it, no matter how long or how hard the road. Jesus went back to God again and again. And if despair and depression are crushing your life, I'm going to tell you a massive part of the solution is prayer. It's about getting down on your knees and praising him who is worthy. It's about submitting to God's authority and making his will your own. It's not about fighting yourself and your inner demons, but it's about looking to God despite your circumstances. And guess what? No one can do this for you. No one can wave some magic wand and make sorrow and despair go away. No one but yourself can choose when enough is enough. And at that point, you start on your journey of recovery. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we find ourselves are comforted by God. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Be encouraged and be encouraged by the word of God. Now, as for Jesus overcoming death on the cross, you may think that's a little out there and disconnected from your world. Well, I say this. We firstly overcome death by committing ourselves to him, by receiving him fully as our Lord and as our Savior. And we do that with genuine intent. And if we're doing it with genuine intent, we're guaranteed our place in heaven with Daddy God. When we die to our old life in the baptismal pool, we can begin to live our lives as God wants us to live. Just as Jesus did when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him, after this moment, his ministry began. And if you're a true believer, 
and you haven't yet been baptized, I want to talk to you. And we want to get you baptized as soon as possible. Jesus did it. It was a process he had to go through. And it's a process that we have to go through. And we can then rise again and live new life. Secondly, we overcome a life that can look like death. It can be empty. It can feel pointless. It can be dark. By sacrificing what we have and giving it all to him, this is a little bit what John said earlier, actually. As you do this, just as we see Jesus after his resurrection, you'll find that the blessings flow back to you time after time. By giving all of ourselves to doing God's will and sacrificing our time and money and all that we hold in positions of idol worship, if we give these things up and offer all that we are and not just part of our lives, you will find freedom and generosity. They'll just pour in. Sometimes maybe just not in the way that you expected. Remember, God's desire for us isn't that we should be perfect. That'll only happen in heaven. His purpose is that we should keep growing more like Jesus. When our lives fall so far short that we're tempted to give up the struggle, it's helpful to know where we've come from rather than how much further we need to go. If you're feeling a complete and utter failure, a trusted friend can give you much-needed perspective. You're not as good as you could be, but you're much better than you were. When we're trying to bring our lives into line with God's word, it's important to take steps that are possible in our present life circumstances. God isn't, he's not a harsh taskmaster. As with any father, he's delighted with sincere attempts to please him, no matter how, how small they may seem to us. Jesus is the mighty overcomer. Amen? And through him, we can overcome too. Let me leave you with this final bit of scripture. It's from Romans 5, verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. You are all overcomers. No matter what you're going through, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, Jesus wants you to know that you are an overcomer. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive.
also do loud. And we give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we love.